Oh, so when we went diving in Monterey, um, and out here we see California sea lions too, but they can be really playful, but they can also be a little bit annoying. Like they can, they'll dive around you, swim around you, nip at your head or nip at, they're big. Oh yeah, they're like 2,000 pounds, like big. <laughs> and they'll, sometimes they'll pull your mask and they'll do all sorts of things. So you kind of just have to like keep a low profile. <laughs> Hello, my name is Katie Hind and I am a phycologist who studies coral and algae on the Pacific Northwest. Welcome to episode two of Below the Tide. I'm really happy that you're here. We are sitting down with Dr. Katie Hind again, and this time we are talking about scuba diving and how science goes underwater, as well as her research in the urchin barrens in the Pacific Northwest. I really hope you enjoy, and just a reminder, there are resources on my Instagram page, at Below the Tide Podcast. There you'll see some pictures, some uh, diagrams, definitions, all the same as last time. So grab a coffee and enjoy this episode. I'm assuming you scuba dive. Yeah, so I... Again, when I was in high school, I started scuba diving. I was a lifeguard for a long time, so I was always kind of in the water. Um, and I got the opportunity to do, you know how often they teach scuba diving in pools, mm -hmm. um, especially in Ontario, <laughs> there's not a lot of places to go. Um, and so it was being offered at the pool that I worked at. And so I, and of course I was interested in marine biology. And so I did my certifications in Ontario. We went to Lake Tobamori, which is freezing it was so much colder than the ocean there um, and that's where I did my open water certification when I went back to do my PhD in Fredericton um, the lab is heavily into scuba diving so we got all our certifications to be certified with the Canadian Association of Underwater Science mm -hmm. or COS um, and so those are pretty rigorous um, training and you also have to have kind of your advanced scuba um, certifications and so you do like a drift dive and a night dive and so I got a lot more experience diving when I did my PhD which was great and my my supervisor Gary Saunders is also a really avid diver and so I think that community like lots of people in the lab were out diving all the time so it was just a great experience to get a lot more dives in um, and then when I came out to BC to do some of my research, um, we would be doing like 30 dives, maybe a trip kind of thing. Um, and then when I did my postdoc at UBC, I would go up to Calvert Island on the central coast of BC. And again, I would just come and do like 10 days of diving. Um, and wow. the important thing with that, and the reason why that's really important is because the subtitle realm has been vastly understudied. So intertidal, lots of you and me, we can put our gumboots on and we can go to the intertidal zone and we can pick up seaweed. So that's been happening for many, many years. But there haven't been a lot of scientists who have been exploring the subtitally. Um, so the diversity there is really unexplored. Um, and so subtitle collections and subtitle research is much more difficult right <laughs> uh, you're time limited you can only have 45 minutes to do whatever you're doing um, and then you're done for the day or till the next dive um, so it pre presents and it's expensive and you have all this gear and you can't get to remote locations unless they have a, 
an air compressor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so, that, so that is a really important aspect of the research that happens in Gary Saunders' lab because um, they're able to explore all these areas that, they've, that we've never really explored before. Right, and yeah. what's usually the depth of that subtidal zone that you'd be diving to? Yeah, so the deepest we would go would be 100 feet. Okay. And algae can live, actually the deepest living alga is a coralline <laughs> alga, and, and it can live to um, 268 meters depth. Wow. Um, but we would only go to about a hundred and even at a hundred you can find seaweeds growing that deep even though it gets quite dark mm-hmm. um, so that's the kind of the limit of the photic zone we call it so that's the depth of that the light can penetrate so you do need a little bit of light in order for photosynthesis to occur but corallines um, have adapted to take in very 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 um, short wavelengths of light I might have gotten that mixed up. I don't know if it's <laughs> short or long. I always get them mixed up um, at, at depths and be able to photosynthesize. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Have you seen any really cool things while you're diving? Like, what is something? Yeah. Um, cool or like maybe scary. Yeah. <laughs> um, so California sea lions are. Um, so when we went diving in Monterey. Um, and out here we've seen California sea lions too, but they can be really playful, but they can also be a little bit annoying. Like they can, they'll dive around you, swim around you, nip at your head or nip and they're at, big. They're big. Oh yeah. They're like 2000 pounds, like big. Yeah. <laughs> and they'll, sometimes they'll pull your mask and they'll do all sorts of things. So you kind of just have to like keep a low profile. Um, but when I was on Calvert, um, I was out diving and a stellar sea lion um, was watching because what they do is um, they see a boat and they think you're fishing and so they want to try to grab the fish off of your line or whatever. So he was the biggest sea lion I've ever seen underwater and it was, this isn't 2,000, this is more like 4,000 pounds, like a male bull stellar sea lion. Um, Again, I always just try to focus on what I'm doing and let my dive buddy kind of watch the, the, um, the sea lion situation. Um, and then I go, usually kind of go down, hover near the bottom, uh, and then I do, I'm just so focused on collecting that um, I try to not really pay attention to the sea lions that are around but it turned out he was the stellar just really was interested if we had fish and once I think he realized we didn't have any fish he took off and left so it wasn't super um, super bad Um, the thing about collecting underwater is it is really challenging because as soon as you pick um, a seaweed off of a rock it's floating mm-hmm. and so we have bags that we're trying to catch them in so we have this whole system of like lift them up and pull it down and like zip it closed um, to try to get the seaweed in the bag um, and then with the coralline crust I actually have to bring a hammer and chisel down. oh really underwater yeah, underwater and then I have to like chisel around the specimen and then get it in the bag Sometimes they are, um, and often take pictures first as well, and sometimes they are so hard on the rock that only like powder comes off. So then I get my dive buddy to like hold their hand underneath the specimen and hold the bag flat like that, 
and then I chip into it and then like the specimen like falls down into the bag. So it's really, so like I was saying, like even though there's sea lions swimming around us, you, you kind of have to be really focused. And again, like I said before, like time is of the essence. You only have a tank of air and depending on what depth you're at, that'll go faster or slower. And so you're limited. And so you kind of have to try to work hard when you're underwater to get everything that you need because you only get it that one shot. Right. Um, so it's a little bit of pressure to like get it all done, especially when I was doing the, the survey underwater because you have so many quadrats that you're wanting to measure and running a transect line and all that kind of stuff. But for the diversity stuff, it's quite fun because we're really just g swimming around and collecting. We don't really, it, we call it haphazard. <laughs> it's just whatever we find, that's, that was our sampling method. It wasn't um, strategic in terms of like laying a transect and having quadrats and mm -hmm. being more quantitative with it. So that was, that was a big difference between when I did the urchin, the urchin baron study versus when I just collect for, mm -hmm. for taxonomy. Yeah. How do you transport all of your stuff down, like your chisel and your hammer and all your bags and your camera? Yeah, exactly. So you have it all attached to you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, it, yeah, it's heavy. Um, and so you, we use these um, collecting bags. They're like a mesh bag and we'll put all of our things in it. You have to be very organized before mm -hmm. you go down because you can't spend time down there organizing. No. So you have to have all your bags ready and all your waterproof paper. Uh, that already have numbers on them so that you can be strategic in how you're going to collect things. Um, your bags all folded the way you want be so that you can open them easily, put the specimen in. And then you have to try to also remember where you collected it from because on all of these specimens, um, there are, there's collection information. So what depth you were at, what it was growing on, who it was growing with, um, you know, all of the, all of that information is important. Right. So you kind of have to keep like a mental list. Some people might even take notes underwater on a clipboard mm -hmm. uh, with a pencil. Um, but what we do is we try to, with our dive buddy, um, go to a certain area and be like, okay, we're going to collect all around this rock, but you don't have a way to communicate underwater. So you're like, kind of just, you're like, here, we're gonna do this. <laughs> it's all hand signals. It's all, cause you don't know what you're gonna see when, before you go down, right? It's mm -hmm. not like, we don't go to the same place every time. So it's always new. Um, so yeah, you go down and then, so then when you come back, back up, you work with your dive buddy and often we would make a map. So we would like draw a map of what, what we saw and be like, okay, first we collected around this, rock and it we were at 45 foot depth and then we went over to this sandy part and it, that was at 60 feet and then we went here so we kind of like make a, a map and that way when we find our collections we've put them into separate bags and been like okay everything I collected on that rock is in this bag everything I collected in the sand over there is in this bag so right. you kind of have to be strategic in how you like collect all your specimens but. whoa and so usually you have one dive buddy with you yeah, we generally, it depends on funding, <laughs> really, right. and depends on travel and everything, but um, usually we would be in groups of four, um, and then two teams of two would dive, so that you could kind of spread out and go see more more areas. Um, and yeah, generally that's mm -hmm. that was traditionally what we did. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm depending, assuming, like yeah. if... You know, Gary also does a lot of work in the Arctic, for example. It's so expensive to go up there and do work 
um, the church of Manitoba or even further. So sometimes that would just be two people that right. would go on those trips. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And yeah, I'm assuming it's expensive to even just go diving to collect. Yeah, yeah. And the thing that the thing that people don't realize, so, I mean, it's a little bit expensive to go diving. It's not too bad. Once you have all your gear, yeah. and you, you know, really it's just getting air and mm -hmm. and servicing your gear and keeping your certifications all up to date. Um, but the thing that people might not realize is when you come up from the dive, so it might sound kind of easy to swim around and just collect things. But every specimen then has this huge long trajectory of what's going to happen to it. So, you know, it gets pressed and it gets special labels are made for it. It gets databased, it gets photographed, it gets DNA extracted from it. Like it, there's hours and hours and hours that go into each of these specimens. So you kind of have to be conservative with what you collect because you can't collect like 10 of the same thing. Yeah. Because that would be hundreds of hours of processing that would happen down the line. So um, yeah, that's, that's what we're, I mean, what I'm doing right now with Keeley, like we're putting all these specimens away and it's, t it's taking us a whole summer to mm -hmm. we're so we have about 400 specimens that we're putting away and it's going to take us probably four months to wow. um, database them all and that's not even the dna part of it that's just databasing and and pressing and putting away wow yeah oh my goodness so there's a lot of every specimen has I don't, I, want, I don't know if I could say hundreds of hours, but every specimen has dozens of hours, I would say, invested into it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And how many specimens would you collect in one dive, typically, on average? Um, it kind of depends what we're collecting. Like, crusts are slow, because we have to chisel everything. Right. And that's why, again, why people don't traditionally study them, because they're really difficult and time-consuming. Um, I don't know, 40 maybe? Wow, 40 specimens, maybe. Um, I'm not totally sure. Um, and then on a trip, like I'm trying to think back when Bridget and I went to California over, I think we went for like a week, seven days, I think we collected 10,000 specimens. Whoa. <laughs> or something like that, like something crazy. Was it 10,000? I don't, I don't know, off the, sorry. You wow. can edit this part out. <laughs> I don't know wild. How many. Yeah, but we. But a significant amount. A, a lot. Yes. Wow. Mm -hmm. But you have to have like that. We were lucky because we were in Gary's lab. We were doing this with um, Gary's lab, who has the infrastructure and the funding in order to process all of this, because it's hours and hours of student work and um, grad student work and, like I said, like the. Um, everything that goes into it, it's really a lot of, in, of time and money invested in it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. And would you say that time and money is usually like the major setback? Money. It's like, yeah. Is <laughs> <laughs> usually the major setback. Yeah, for sure. And then also expertise mm -hmm. um, a little bit. So that's one of the issues. I don't know if you've ever heard of the taxonomic impediment, mm -hmm. um, but it's where th we don't have many experts in certain taxonomic groups anymore. And so you really need those experts in order to identify things properly and to re rename them. 
Um, and because we don't have a lot of funding to hire these experts, um, a lot of things don't don't get described. And so there's, in fact, I think I have about a hundred species on my list that still need description. So these are new species that we know are new to science. They're newly discovered, but we just haven't had the time to describe them or the money to yeah. do it. And so, yeah, that's for sure one of the biggest limitations, mm -hmm. I would say, yeah. is expertise and time and money. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's always the common thing amongst many researchers mm -hmm. is time and money. Yeah. Cause, and everyone has all these things that they want to do, but the lack of time yeah. and money. Yeah, and for sure. Yeah. I always dream if I won the lottery, I would quit <laughs> my job and I would just describe species of seaweeds. Yeah. That's what I would do if I won $35 million. <laughs> <laughs> and I saw that you also did some research with the urchin barons. Yeah, if yeah, you could exactly. Just kind of like give an overview of what an urchin baron is. Sure, yeah. So um, I was interested in urchin barons because I would go to some of these phycological um, conferences and a lot of people would talk about urchin barons versus kelp forests and how urchin barons are depleted of diversity. Um, what they are is basically when an urchin population explodes, um, they are able to eat, eat, eat all of the kelp in that area and they graze it all down until it is, I'm putting quotes around barren, uh, because I would see these pictures in presentations and all I would see was coral and algae because when the urchins mow down all the kelps and the fleshy algae, um, all that's left is the crusty corallines that can grow on the rocks. And so I, was, I would look at those pictures and be like, that's not, that doesn't look barren to me. That looks like a hotbed of corallines. And so some people have even called it like a pavement of coral and algae that grows in these urchin barrens. Um, and this is also all linked to um, the sea otter urchin trophic cascade. So traditionally there were sea otters that we had um, on this coast and then they were hunted and extirpated from the area. Um, sea otters main food is sea urchins. They bring them up and they eat them and they need to consume like 25% of their body weight a day in order to maintain their, to, for their metabolism because they don't have blubber. They're the mm -hmm. only sea um, mammal that doesn't have blubber. Um, and so they would, they would always keep that urchin population in check. But when the sea otters were extirpated from the area, then the sea urchin population exploded and then they, the urchins decimated the kelp forests. Um, and so there was this huge change in um, the ecosystem. And so people are still, a lot of scientists are still studying that dynamic between um, urchin barrens and kelp forests. And it seems like it's a lot easier to go from a kelp forest to an urchin barren than it is to go from an urchin barren back to a kelp forest. And so actually Dr. Ann Solomon at Simon Fraser University studies a lot of these tipping points. So at what point does the ecosystem tip to this other stable state from a kelp forest to a urchin barren? Right. And so I wanted to look at what corallines live in urchin barrens and are they really barren? So my major, major research question for my postdoc was um, at UBC with Dr. Patrick Martone was, um, are urchin barrens really barren? Or are they a hotbed of diversity for corallines? Uh, what we found was that they aren't. They are limited in the species diversity. We still found 
um, I think it was eight different species of coralline crusts that grow in urchin barrens, just at our few sites that we looked at. Um, but the surprise from that study was that the kelp forest, so even though the, when you look at a kelp forest, you don't necessarily see all the corallines, but the kelp forest actually had greater diversity of coralline algae than the urchin barrens. Even though the urchin barren is this vast pavement of coralline algae, they call it, and the kelp forest is mostly kelp, but just the, the diversity that it supports of other algae, of fleshy red algae and fleshy green algae, also supports a diverse, more diversity of coralline algae as well. Right. Wow. So that was kind of surprising to us. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. And I guess like the whole urchin barren trophic cascade is something that's quite prominent and talked about. So it's interesting that you got to do kind of take that in another direction towards the coralline. Yeah, for sure. Because a lot of people in the past have studied how the trophic cascade affects animals, how the trophic cascade affects even fleshy different algae, especially kelp. Mm -hmm. Most people are focused on the kelp because that's the most visible, you know, effect of the loss of the of the um, otters. But and the urchins, you just see the urchins eating all of the kelp. But I was kind of interested in almost the next step, right? So what happens after the kelp are gone to? Does it affect the lower, um, kind of the base of the kelp forest? And corallines often grow at the base of all of those kelps. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the urchins cannot eat the coralline. They can. They okay. do. Yep. They <laughs> urchins eat everything. Yeah. They kind of just munch and like take um, everything out. Yeah. They've got that Aristotle's lantern, the five-toothed mouth part, right. right? And they and it is strong, and they can eat anything. And so yeah, they'll. I mean, they prefer kelp because it's really nutritious and delicious for them. Um, and then they'll probably move on to fleshy algae, and then if they've got all the fleshy algae consumed, then they would eat coralline algae too. Wow. Yeah. So they yeah. can scrape. They don't have a radula like those chitons or limpets or snails, but they have um, a specialized mouth part that can consume the, the corallines as well. And that's it for episode two. Thanks so much for joining me today on Below the Tide podcast. I hope you enjoyed, I hope you learned something, you laughed, or at least you enjoyed your coffee while you listened. Stay tuned because next Thursday we will have episode three. 